My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. So we are in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Uh, we are in the fourth commandment as we continue to walk through Exodus, and we're walking week by week through the Ten Commandments. So you can go ahead and follow along. The text will also be on the screen. Uh, have you ever approached something that should have been fairly simple, but the more you got into it, it was incredibly complicated? Like you got into the mechanics and the details of it. It was just super, super complex and complicated. Uh, I read this story from back in the fall that uh, the city of San Francisco has a homeless crisis. And uh, they, one of the problems with the homeless crisis in downtown San Francisco is that there are a lot of homeless people that are using the bathroom and the streets. It's kind of created an unsanitary situation. So someone had a very good idea. They said, let's build a bathroom. Specifically, let's build one toilet. All right? This, this can, it's not going to solve the problem, but let's, it'll, it'll help. We're going to build one toilet. So the reason this became national news is because they, the cost came back on building the one toilet. $1.7 million for one toilet. And people went, what? what? Why? How does it cost $1.7 million to build one toilet? And it's because there's a crazy amount of red tape and regulations that made something that was so good and so simple, so complex. There's like a $300,000 architectural uh, and engineering fee. There was a $150,000 construction management fee for someone to oversee the building of one toilet. And you add up all these fees and it's $1.7 million. And more to the point, that was in 2022, the fall. The construction completion date would be 2025. Because of all of the committees it would have to go through to build one toilet. Because of all of the red tape. Something such a good thing and yet became so complicated. And that is how it feels when I approach the fourth commandment. That's how it feels when you get into the fourth commandment and the call to Sabbath rest. Out of all of the commandments, this is by far the most difficult to understand as a Christian. I just want to read it and say, do it. The band's going to come up. That's just, <laughs> just but it, you can't. It's not, it's not that simple. And we're going to see some of the complexities that is built into this and that gets added on to this that makes this not as simple and straightforward as just reading the fourth command and doing it. And it's not going to be as practical today. Uh, we, we, we're not going to give a lot of practical application on how to rest. We did that in a series called The Hammer and the Hammock. I would encourage you to, to go back and listen to that. Uh, but we're also, Sabbath is going to come back up in Exodus 31. So we're going to spend some more time on the practical uh, parts of rest. But today we need to get into the why. So I want to walk through this and some of the complicated parts of this. And then as, at the end, as much as possible, I want to simplify why, to, and help us see why the Sabbath was made, uh, why it is good, and why we should engage in Sabbath rest. So why the Sabbath was made, why it's good, and why we should engage in Sabbath rest. So let me read it. We'll pray and we'll walk this together. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, 
and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us understand your word. That we would be able to listen. That we would be able to work through this and see something that is so good that you have given us. And then live out your word in faith. And live it out in repentance. And live it out in delighting in you through the rest that you provide. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if I tasked you to take the Bible, let's just say you've never read the Bible before. Start in Genesis, read all the way through, okay? And I gave you the task of, I want you to take note of when the word Sabbath is mentioned. This idea of Sabbath rest, I want you to take note of it. I'm going to give you the quick kind of run through the Bible of what you would see. You would see in Genesis 1 and 2, right out the gate, that God made the world in six days, and he rested on the Sabbath, the seventh, and he gave us the Sabbath. Now, that's not because God needed to rest. God was not tired. He didn't work, make the universe in six days and went, oh, man, I need this. Like, our God is inexhaustible. He is all-powerful. He did not need rest, but he gave us the gift of Sabbath. He modeled it, and he invites us into it, as you're going to see throughout the rest of the scriptures. So that's when Sabbath was made. Then you get to the fourth commandment. That's the next time that you see it. And you see, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath day is literally just day of rest. A day of rest. And keep it holy means don't work on the Sabbath. Not just you, but the whole nation. Not you, not your son, not your daughter, not your male servant, not your female servant, not your livestock, not the sojourner. Who is within your gates? The whole nation is going to cease from work and rest. And then you keep reading and you get to Exodus 31 when this shows back up again in the book of Exodus. And then you'd hear this. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. And then you see how serious the Sabbath is. That, that if you don't do this, the command is you'll be put to death. That shows up again in Exodus 35, this capital punishment linked to the Sabbath. And then you read the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus is going to have more things to say about the Sabbath and some of the nuances of different Sabbath days. And then you get to the book of Numbers, and the book of Numbers you hear a story about a man who went out on the Sabbath to gather sticks. He's working by gathering sticks. He is caught. They take counsel together, and then they obey Exodus 31 and 35, and they put him to death. Then you read in the book of Deuteronomy where this is taught and reinforced yet again. And then you watch the nation of Israel as they, throughout the rest of their history, in seasons where they are uh, not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might, when they're chasing after other idols, they... One of the key markers of disobedience is they give up the Sabbath and they work. And you'd see in the book of Nehemiah a call to repentance to Sabbath. You'd see a celebration of Sabbath keeping in the book of Isaiah. You'd see a call to repentance in the book of Jeremiah for Sabbath profaning. You'd see a call of condemnation for Sabbath profaning and Sabbath breaking in the book of Ezekiel. And you'd see throughout the Old Testament a consistent call 
to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do not profane this. This is bad. It's clear when you read the Old Testament that the people of God were not practicing the Sabbath. They, they didn't know how. Once they learned, they strayed and they did not practice the Sabbath. It's very clear when you read the Old Testament that is what happens. And then you read through the Old Testament and you get to the New Testament. And the first time you'd see the Sabbath is in the Gospel of Matthew. And you would start to notice a tone change in the Gospel of Matthew and everything that follows. In Matthew 12, uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and the disciples begin to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees who are watching, these are the religious leaders, they say, You're breaking the Sabbath, you're profaning the Sabbath. I mean, in the book of Numbers, a man was stoned for collecting sticks. You're breaking the Sabbath by collecting grain. And Jesus says, wrong. And then he starts to combat them from the scriptures. And then he says this in verse 6. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And if you just read the Old Testament and you read that story, you might think, uh, was that okay? I mean, I know the Sunday school answer is Jesus did it, yes. But is that okay? Like, it, I, I, I don't know. I just read a lot of things in the Old Testament. Like, this is a really big deal. But all of a sudden, it's, and then he doubles down on this. And he starts healing people on the Sabbath intentionally in Luke 4, Luke 13, Luke 14, John 5, John 9. He starts intentionally healing people on the Sabbath to make a point about the Sabbath. And then he fulfills the law perfectly, and he dies on the cross for our sins, and then he rises on Resurrection Sunday and ascends into heaven, and the church is left with, okay, what do we do with the fourth commandment? We just saw Jesus. We, we, we saw these teachings that he's done. What do we do? And if you read the rest of the New Testament, there's only three really places that deal with this. And the book of Romans, the book of Romans is a letter that was written to a church in Rome uh, where there is clear Gentile and Jewish division. And it shows up in a lot of different ways. But one of them, when you get to chapter 14, is you can see it's the Sabbath. Because Gentile Christians, this would be Romans and Greeks and whomever's in the city who's non-Jewish, that they have no background in practicing the Sabbath. That's the one thing that made Israel unique amongst all the nations. Everyone else worked every day. That was, that was normative. The Sabbath was way different. Wait, they take a whole day off and they, they don't work? And then there's Jewish Christians in the Church of Rome who have Sabbath background. And this is what Paul writes in Romans 14, verse 5. He says, one person esteems one day, and day there is Sabbath, as better than another. While another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And he says, it's, you should be convinced in your own mind. Is that a matter of conscience? And then in verse 10, you see some of the context here. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? And it's clear from there that he's pushing on. Don't make this a matter of judgment or division amongst you. Don't do that. And then in Colossians 2, he's writing to the church. Uh, Paul's writing a letter to the church at Colossae. 
And he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon. Those are all Old Testament practices or a Sabbath. Huh. And then he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And everything at the front end of that list makes a lot of sense. We don't practice festivals anymore. Like these things that we don't. Those are part of the Old Testament law that was fulfilled. But Sabbath, too? It's part of the Ten Commandments. But is that, and that's a shadow of Christ who is to come and a shadow of the future rest that he offers. And then you get what we read uh, in our liturgy earlier. You get Hebrews 3 and 4. And in Hebrews 3 and 4, the author of Hebrews is commenting and, expo- and expositing Psalm 9, uh, 95. And in, as he's doing that, he's pointing back to the nation of Israel of how they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years after Exodus. And that they are ultimately seeking to have rest in the promised land. And that is a picture of the people of God that, that are sojourners in this land waiting for the future rest that Jesus provides. And that's it. And if you look at the Old and New Testament, it's like, if you're honest, it feels a bit like whiplash. That real serious in the Old Testament about this, and the New Testament's a bit of a curveball. And the question is why? Why does it feel like that? That is the million-dollar question in approaching the fourth commandment as a New Testament Christian. Why? And are we still supposed to do this as Christians? I know we're not supposed to murder. That's clear, but are we still supposed to do this? Now, there is a missing puzzle piece that we need. And that missing puzzle piece is the period of time between when the Old Testament was written and when the New Testament is written. And that is an essential puzzle piece that will help, uh, help us see why it feels a bit like whiplash. And it's during that period there are a lot of abuses that happened to the fourth commandment. So if you're going to understand why a single toilet took $1.7 million to build, like if you're going to understand and figure that out, you've got to go back through all, everything that led to that, all of the red tape and regulations and everything that went into that that made such a good thing a headache. And in the same way, if you understand the fourth commandment, you've got to see during this period of time between the Old and the New Testament, all of the red tape and regulations that got added on to the fourth commandment that abused the fourth commandment. So that's what we need to see. All right, so where did all this red tape come from in this period? Uh, this period is often called the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. It's also called Second Temple Judaism, okay? So the last of the Old Testament was written in the 6th century B.C. And then you've got centuries that lead up to the coming of Christ. And then uh, when they receive, when they, in the 6th century, as the temple is being rebuilt, the people of God are realizing we, we have made so many mistakes that led to the judgment that God brought on the nation of Israel, where the temple was destroyed. And their centuries are moved from when the law was given, which when, when, this, when, when Exodus is being written, somewhere around 14th, 13th BC, century BC. So there's centuries that have passed, and now they're looking at the law, and they're, they're seeing the, the Old Testament, how it says, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh you shall rest. And they, they look at, ex, at Exodus 31, and it says, you shall keep the Sabbath. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. 
and they react. And listen, I a little bit understand their reaction. I want to be a little bit charitable to the reaction. Like what we, we uh, my wife and I, we've led groups for years. We've been in uh, groups for years. And the past seven years, our groups have had lots of children, like upwards of 22 children at one point, if everyone came. <laughs> That's a lot of children. And you try to lead discussion with a lot of children. Like we, in our, in our uh, downstairs is where we'd have discussion. Right above us was the playroom where all the kids were. And you'd hear, ah! I mean, just, just so every now, every now and then, I just have to go up there. And, Guys, open the door. Just be like, y'all are being too loud. You need to quiet down and shut the door. Now imagine if I opened the door back up and said, you are being too loud, and if this continues, you're going to (laughs) die. And then closed the door and went back downstairs. I just, (laughs) if I was a seven-year-old, I'd have some questions. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Define loud. What activities are considered too loud? Like, I, what is quiet? Can, you t- uh, can we have a hall monitor outside that can determine, like, what the, the level of loudness if we're being too loud? Also, they'll serve as the sacrifice when you come up to kill someone. Like, I just, I'd have some questions, and I understand a little bit when they open up the law again and they see how serious it is to where they want to go define rest, define work. What activities are considered work? Can we have a hall monitor to determine what is work and what is rest? I understand that reaction of what the religious leaders were doing. But man, oh man, they took that and ran with it in the most legalistic and burdensome direction. They developed an entire set of extra laws called the Millicott Laws. 39 different categories of work that would profane the Sabbath. And those categories had subcategories. Like you'd have the category of planting. And then within that category, you'd have planting and harvesting and all the things that went into that. And those subcategories, you'd have all these different rules. So much so that like during that time period, climbing a tree was considered profaning the Sabbath. Why? Because if you accidentally broke a branch off and that branch had fruit on that branch, you just harvested and you profane the Sabbath. And they had hundreds of those extra laws. I mean, so much so that this, the, the, the Melchot laws that, that were established during this period of time between the 6th century and the coming of Jesus. Like that, they, it's still God's Orthodox Jews today. I mean, you cannot, in Orthodox Judaism, you cannot open an umbrella. You cannot tear off a piece of toilet paper, apply lotion, blow up a balloon on the Sabbath. When I went to Jerusalem years ago, we were staying at a hotel. We were up on one of the higher floors. You could not push a button on the elevator because that was considered profaning the Sabbath, which meant that you got on the elevator and every floor, it opened and it closed, opened and closed, opened and closed, which was super annoying if you had to be somewhere. And any, like that still exists. That right there is the context of the coming of Christ. All these different rules and red tape that you had to follow, you had to make sure that you had to do everything perfectly. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious leaders, were the hall monitors. And they're looking and they're saying, are you, are you preventing the Sabbath? Are you preventing the Sabbath? And made everyone paranoid about the fourth commandment to where it was not restful. It was a burden. 
Now, here's where they went wrong. When they opened up the law and they started taking the Sabbath seriously again, they misunderstood the context of how the Sabbath was given. They misunderstood it. They misunderstood the fact that God created the Sabbath as a gift. Genesis 1 and 2 makes that so clear. The Sabbath is good. It is a gift for the people of God so that we might not just continue to work and work and work. And then the people of God for centuries were slaves and they did not Sabbath. For hundreds of years, they worked and they worked and they worked and they worked and they worked for Pharaoh and they did not rest. All they did was work. And then God redeems them as we saw earlier in Exodus. And he is aggressively trying to get their attention. You are not a slave. You are not the sum of your production. You matter more than that. You will not work anymore. You will not endlessly work anymore. This will not be the pattern. You will work six days, and on the seventh, you will rest because you are not a slave, and you belong to me, and you will rest in me. They missed that. They missed the, 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 the aggressiveness and the severity. It was, help. It, 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 was, it was meant to call them back into not being slaves, but being the people of God. But unfortunately, the religious leaders took that out of context and ran with it and added all types of red tape and burdensome regulations. In centuries leading up to the coming of Christ, the people were burdened by the Sabbath. They were burdened by it. So it's clear. When you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is written to a people that do not practice the Sabbath. The New Testament is written to a people that were forced to practice the Sabbath and do it in very unholy ways. And for centuries leading up to Jesus, the people were feeling the weight of this burden. And then Jesus does the most punk rock thing ever. I mean, he just kicks down the door and says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the captain now. I am the Lord of this. You know why? Because I wrote the Sabbath laws. That's the, Jesus wrote the Sabbath laws. He gave them to Moses because he is God. He knows what, they, what the intended meaning was. As some people call it authorial intent, the intent of the author. Because he wrote it. Like right now, we, in the Southern Baptist Convention, we're Southern Baptists, uh, and in the Southern Baptist Convention, there's a bit of a controversy right now, which I know will shock you um, based on our history, but there is. And I'm not going to give the details of it, but what's happening a little bit right now is we have something called the Baptist Faith and Message. Baptist Faith and Message, message the 2000 version. It's kind of a guiding bit of a, of a confession for us, a binding set of beliefs that we have as Baptists. And... There are some churches and some pastors who are looking at one part of that, Baptist faith and message, and they're saying, ah, just, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't, think that's what that. I don't think that was what was intended when it was written. And they're starting to stray from the Baptist faith and message. You know what's great? The man who wrote the Baptist faith and message is still alive. That's my, my former president at my seminary, Al Muller. He wrote it on behalf of Baptists. And he's saying, y'all, I wrote this for y'all. Like, I, I, I'm the author. I, I know what was intended 
when I wrote it, because I wrote it for you. Like at the last year's annual meeting, he walked up to the mic and went, hey guys, I'm here. (laughs) And he started to say, I know what I meant. Like he started to explain, you're taking this in the wrong direction. And Jesus walks up to the mic in the New Testament and goes, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I wrote all of this. I know the heart of the Sabbath. And what you are practicing is not the heart of the Sabbath at all. And that is the missing puzzle piece that we need to understand. Why the Old Testament feels very different than the New Testament. Jesus was reclaiming the Sabbath from the religious hall monitors. And also he's taking a spear and just like right at the heart of the Pharisees and their self-righteous religiosity. Like they just, the Sabbath was their way of being holy and holier than thou, and he's just destroying it with every teaching. And when you understand that, you understand why the Old Testament and New Testament feel different, but still, the logical question that follows is, okay, but are we still supposed to obey the fourth commandment? That's helpful. I can understand now why the Old New Testament feel a little bit different, but are we still called to obey the fourth commandment? And boy, oh boy, is that not not the question. I mean, I I have wrestled with this for years. And then Monday, I got reacquainted with all the arguments again, and I just, Monday was not fun. I just was like, oh my goodness, I forgot how unbelievably difficult this is to understand. Because y'all, we're, and, and listen, there are different approaches to the fourth commandment now, and we're shaped by different traditions and those approaches. Like some of y'all, some of y'all love the fact that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. God's chicken. They honor the Lord. They do not work on Sunday because Sunday is the Sabbath. It's the Lord's day. And it is the new Sabbath, whereas the Jews had Friday to Saturday night, we now have Sunday, and that is the Sabbath where we don't work. Some of y'all have that background, that understanding of the Sabbath. And you can understand that's shaped by a tradition called Sabbatarianism. There's lots of different denominations who practice that. Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists. But the idea is, is that Sunday is the new Sabbath. And one day a week, the people of God worship and we rest And we obey the fourth commandment still because the fourth commandment still has moral force. Just as the other nine have moral force, so does this one. And then there are others that go, well, I'm actually a little annoyed that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. Because I really love Chick-fil-A. And I miss some Chick-fil-A sauce. I, I, I like for it to be open on Sunday. And the reason why is because I think Sabbatarians are wrong. I think that God calls us to rest one day of week, but that, I mean, the New Testament kind of pushes on the legalism of this. Like, we don't have to have it on Sunday. You just need to rest, obey the Sabbath principle. Still, there's some moral force there, but we don't have to be so dogmatic or legalistic about which day it is. You just need to make sure that you're resting. Sure, Sunday is a good day to do it, but any day will work, and therefore Chick-fil-A could be open. And then there are others that go, no. No, no, no. Jesus fulfilled the law. And, and Romans, and Colossians 2, and Hebrews, and Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath show that the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. It was a shadow of Christ that is to come in the future rest that he offers. And I mean, we need to rest still. That's still something we need to do. But 
it is not bound by a calendar at all. And you do not have to do it one day a week. And, and how you practice the Sabbath is a matter of conscience. All three of those views, all three of them, have scriptural support. All three of them, you can make arguments from the Bible. It is incredibly complicated to understand the fourth commandment. So, I'm not going to resolve a theological dispute where thousands, millions of brothers and sisters who deeply love Jesus and know their Bibles well have disagreed on this for centuries. I'm not going to resolve that for us. And to be honest with you, even within our eldership, there's differing opinion on this. But I do believe that we can arrive at the same set of functional beliefs. I do believe we need some guardrails. I do believe that on one side, you need guardrails that keep you from the pitfall of legalism, of Pharisaism, of being a Pharisee. And all the problems that they were bringing into the Sabbath. I think you need guardrails that keep you from that pitfall. And I think you also need guardrails that keep you from the pitfall of never resting at all. So I have a statement that I think would be a helpful kind of guardrails that keep us on the center line together. And that is this. The Sabbath is a good gift that God has given us. It is not meant to be a measuring stick for righteousness nor a wedge for division amongst his people. A lifestyle that dismisses this gift is a faithless and sinful rejection of God's good design for human flourishing. Let me read that again. The Sabbath is a good gift that God has given us. It is not meant to be a measuring stick for righteousness nor a wedge for division amongst his people. A lifestyle that dismisses this gift is a faithless and sinful rejection of God's good design for human flourishing. So, let me work through that in, some, in, in a few different chunks. The Sabbath is a good gift that God has given us. I think we can, all can agree on that. It is so clear from Genesis 1 and 2 that the Sabbath is a gift. It is good to rest with the Lord and to rest in Him. It is a good gift that God has given us. I mean, Jesus in His rebuke of the Pharisees in Mark 2, as He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that not man for the Sabbath is what we focus a lot on because he's taking a shot at the Pharisees and the religious leadership. And he's saying, don't you realize by all of your regulations, by all of your red tape, by all of everything that you've added on to this, that we're serving the Sabbath? You misunderstand this, but don't miss the part where he says the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made for man. It is a good gift that God has given us. And that is why Jesus rests over and over and over again. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in his humanity, he needs rest. You see this all over. We give a few examples, but you see it all over the Gospels. In Mark 1, verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed that Jesus regularly rests and gets away from the crowds in the midst of his ministry and prays. You see, in Mark 6, it says, The apostles, verse 30, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is after their missionary journey. And they're excited. They want to tell Jesus everything that we've done. And Jesus paused and says, Hey, 
Verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. I want to hear all about it. But y'all are tired and you need to rest. He's teaching them to rest. In Mark 6, 46, he says, and after, uh, it says, and after he had taken leave of them, he went on the mountain to pray. This happens over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus gets away to rest. The God-man gets away to rest. So whether you believe that the Sabbath still has moral force and it should be on Sunday every Sunday or you believe that it has some moral force but you kind of, there's some, some, some freedom in choosing when to rest or whether you think it's a more matter of conscience, it has been fulfilled, it lacks moral force but we still should rest in general, we can all get in the same page. It is a good gift that God has given us and we should take it. We forget that sometimes. Like last Saturday, we, we had a base, my son had a baseball game and they got canceled because of the rain. And my wife and I, like, we just had the whole morning and afternoon off. We just, we're just, we're so happy. <laughs> we needed it. It's like, oh, man, we need this rest. Rest is a good gift that God has given us. Next part of the statement says, it's not meant to be a measuring stick for righteousness. It is abundantly clear when you look at the New Testament that it is not a measuring stick for righteousness. And that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were doing that. They were using it as a measuring stick. And they were dogmatic that it had to be done like this. You had to perfectly make sure you check all the boxes and make sure that it's done exactly right. And some of you may be the kind of person that is dogmatic about your Sabbath rest and wants to make sure that you check all the boxes. Got to make sure that everything, I got to make sure that I, that, I, that, I, that I obey this fourth commandment well and that I rest well. And if that's you, you're in danger of being just like the Pharisees. You're like, a, like, you're like a, a, a bride who has planned every single part of her wedding. Every single detail has to be just like this. And then the wedding day comes and she doesn't enjoy it at all. Because everything had to be so perfect that she misses the most important part of the wedding. The person, the man that she is marrying and the moment that she has with him. And if you get dogmatic and legalistic about your Sabbath, you'll miss the moment that you have with Christ. Don't do that. Don't do that. The Sabbath was made for man. Do not make it a measuring stick for your own righteousness. Nor, next part of the statement, a wedge for division amongst his people. It is not meant to be a wedge of division at all. That is so clear from the New Testament. You go back to Romans 14. It says, one person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be convinced in his own mind. And it goes on to say, why do you pass judgment on your brother? It was clearly not meant to be a wedge of division in the people of God. There were clearly different approaches. And don't, don't do that. Do not make this a wedge of division amongst the people of God. So all of us should look at that. And whatever, wherever you land on your understanding of the fourth commandment, and you should come to that conclusion, I will not make this a wedge of division. I will not be a hall monitor to make sure that people are doing this right. There will be differences of opinions in our own church, and we will not make that an issue of disunity. Lastly, a lifestyle that dismisses this gift is a faithless and sinful rejection of God's good design for human flourishing. You may be a Sabbatarian and didn't know it. And then you think, no, every, every Sunday is the Lord's Day, and that is the day in which we will rest. And you may see the moral force of the fourth commandment still. 
So I don't need to convince you of that statement right there. The group I need to convince of that statement right there are those that view it more as a matter of conscience, that the Sabbath has been fulfilled by Christ. You're the one that's more in danger of never resting. So let me talk directly to you if that is where you land. If that's you, I've got some questions. Do you believe that the design of God was for you to endlessly work and never rest? So much so that in a calendar month, you could work every single day of the month. Do you believe that was the design of God for you? Does your body show that? How's your body holding up over working and working and working and working and working? Are you getting sick? Are you getting muscle pains and spasms? Stomach aches? Headaches? How's your body holding up? If you're rarely resting and always, always, always working, like you got a career that you are working so hard for, that you work every single day, what makes you any different than the, the Israelite slaves who served Pharaoh and never rested? That you are serving and living for a career and working and working and never resting. And if Jesus needed rest, if Jesus, the God-man, needed rest, why don't you? At a minimum, the idea that you can work and work and work and work and work and never rest is a prideful view of self and a rejection of God to think that you can endlessly strive without resting. It is a, it is a prideful view of self and a rejection of God. I've seen people physically burn out because they, they work and they work and they work and they work and their body is breaking down and they're getting sick. And then I've seen spiritual sickness arise to where they just get numb to God. They don't spend time with Him. They don't rest in Him. And a lifestyle that works too much and does not rest is a sinful rejection of God's good design. And listen, I don't need the fourth commandment to prove that. I'll, I, need, I need the first two. I can point out the different idols that you are serving and working that shows you need to rest in God. You have elevated yourself too highly if that is you, and you believed yourself to be adequate. And I want to say very clearly, you are not. You are not inexhaustible. But I also want to tell you who is, and that is the Lord. That God is inexhaustible. God is all-powerful. God never sleeps and he never slumbers. God is the only one who can do all things, uphold all things. God is the only one who is strong enough to bear it all. And that same 